You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm your guest host, John Mark McMillan, and this is the Summer Series, Episode 3, Art and the Hustle. In today's episode, I'll be joined by author-illustrator Vesper Stamper and visual artist-graphic designer Brandon Willett. We're going to take a deep dive into the subject of how commerce feeds or takes away from the creative process. Does making money through your art give your work its value, or is creating purely from enjoyment enough to validate your pursuit? These are some of the questions we'll be discussing on today's show. So thank you for joining us, and be sure to visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics for additional interview segments and Patreon-only conversations. It blows my mind that out of the, how many people in the world is it? It's like 7 billion or something? Something like uh, that. Some of that is, yeah. it's a mind numbing number of people that it blows my mind that anybody, that, no, I don't want to say this as though I have a complex, but it just blows my mind that someone out there would listen to my music. That's just so sweet. Think about something I make that there are people in this world who enjoy it. People who don't know me listen to my music and they enjoy it and they um, have moments with my music. And it's just mind-blowing when I stop and think about how insane that is. Seriously. That of the billions of people in the world who could make something, someone out there has chosen to listen to my music. It's just really um, humbling, if if I'm allowed to say that. But man, It's pretty incredible, yeah. It really is. Um, you guys are incredible. So are you. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should probably introduce ourselves. Um, why don't you go first, Vesper? I'm Vesper Stamper, and I'm an author-illustrator of young adult historical fiction and picture books for young children. And I'm also a podcaster, I guess. <laughs> nice. For the Vesperisms podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go, Brandon. I'm uh, Brandon Willett. I'm, I dabble in enough to be dangerous. Um, by day, uh, graphic designer, creative director for, um, for web, digital experience, social media, digital marketing, blah, blah, blah. Um, artist, written a few songs in my life. And um, art snob, totally. And you guys will probably find that out pretty soon. <laughs> well, if and I'm a fantastic a- painter, I will say. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, if I may say so, um, I'm not saying you do have a problem, Brandon, but if you had a problem, I think it's that you're actually too good at pretty much anything you try to do. Like, I'm only good at like two things, and so that's all I can do. Like, I feel like you're actually legitimately good, not just kind of average or like above average, like you're legitimately mind-blowing as a DJ, yes. mind-blowing as a painter, Mind-blowing as a songwriter, uh, mind-blowing as an illustrator. I, You really blow my mind at how many things you're good at. So if you have a problem, it's that God cursed you with too many talents. Oh, my gosh. I imagine they uh, they battle one another. Oh, yeah. For, you have you have no idea. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's golly. It sounds so stupid to you know act like it's a problem. But it really is because it's like I just don't know where to – I don't know what to do. I just don't, you know. 
And so I'm like, well, I'm just going to like surf the internet because I don't really know what to do mm-hmm. with myself right now. Well, yeah. I actually think this is a perfect segue into our first question. We're talking about we art and the hustle, right? We're talking about art and business. You know, does commerce feed or take away from your artwork? Like, so my, you know, how does business relate? Does it make your work better? Does it make your work worse? Does it matter? Is it arbitrary? Um, So here's the first question. And Vesper, since you kind of, earlier when we were talking about this, you had a, a really great approach to this question. How do you make the leap from hobby to vocation? And you added a more important question, and should you? Do you need to? Do you need to? Do you want to jump on that question first? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with art being a hobby. And there's there's nothing saying that once you reach a certain skill level that you should make it professional or that if you feel like you're not yet at that level that you shouldn't make it professional. It's, you know, um, I think that in the modern world and especially with all our access to the the availability of putting our work out there there's so much pressure like that if you're an artist that you're going to be a professional one mm. and i i just don't believe that that's necessary i think that your primary driver of doing art or doing anything creative should be do you love it and are you obsessed with it love that absolutely love that uh, um yes and I, I i agree especially with the last thing about obsession um I think the goal is to do things that, you know, that we're like 100% passionate about all the time. I'm not 100% passionate about taking out the trash, but it has to be done. Yeah. You know, so I feel like there's a place that where we lose the the idea of what craft and and skill can provide, you know, at the altar of um I don't know of of this idea that we have to be like like vividly into it. I mean, yes, ultimately there's got to be something about what you're doing, you know, so you can actually look at yourself in the mirror when you wake up in the morning. But I feel like that idea, you know, I, I guess I'll put it down to this, and I know that you guys would probably argue with this, and that's great. But I feel like when it comes to the work we do, John Mark, I'd actually even take it back to a metaphor that your father used to have about Hmm. prayer. Sometimes you're digging holes, sometimes you're setting poles, and sometimes you're making connections. Hmm. I feel like that's the same thing with our craft. You know, that a lot of times, a lot of what we're doing is just sweat equity, Hmm. right? It's like, I could think of a hundred things I'd rather be doing right now, but this is part of I don't want to say the hustle because I know you got questions on that too. And I don't want to have that <sighs> sexy of a segue, but <laughs> it is part of that, you know? And, yeah. and I feel like a lot of times we can lose people, you know, who, who want to move into something like this because they feel like, well, I'm not like there, there's this, there's this, uh, this, this desire to have that type of passion. And sometimes it actually takes effort to even get there. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, And um, so I don't know if that's a point counterpoint, but, you know, yeah, sometimes I don't like what I'm doing, but I know I need to do it and it's fine because I'm really good at it and I can do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And obviously somebody needs it, but Mm -hmm. 
But then there's other times I'm doing stuff and I'm like, heck yes, this is, this is, this is why I do what I do. But that's not all the time. I think it comes down to the, uh, what it's, uh, it's every day can't be your birthday. Mm. You know, it's Um, not a party if it happens every day. Right. Right. So I, I guess that would be my, um, kind of like kind of challenge to that idea. Yeah. And maybe it's more of just part of a clear clarification that we have and, you know, the passion versus the reality that there is a high level of function and necessity, you know, intertwined in this thing that we really want to do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I think of the, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the 80, 20 principle, you know, like the Pareto principle Ooh, Yeah, mm-hmm. and it yeah. like, and it, how it affects literally every aspect of this. And I was just talking to a friend about how, 80, first of all, 80% of what you do should never be seen. It mm, should never wow. see the light of day. It, it, no, you know, tell um, that to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And, and I think that um, what I've noticed over, you know, the couple of decades I've been doing this is that more and more people put 80% of their stuff online and only 20% of their stuff is, you know, really should see the light of day. And, and, and I'm not saying that because it's like bad quality or anything. It's more just that, you know, you have to have a lot of growth under the ground before um, mature work can come to the surface, you know? And, um, but, you know, as an illustrator, it's like, Brandon, you're totally right. Like not everything that, um, not every day that I'm working on a book is like, I'm hitting these highs of inspiration. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I, I have to be drawing every day and 80% of my drawings in my sketchbook are going to be total crap. And 20% of the time I might hit on something that I'm like, oh, I can use that, you know, but if I don't do that 80% um, that will never see the light of day and that like I have to work through the crap, you know, to get to to the gold, <laughs> um, yeah. then I'm not going to produce good work. But I, I do think that people often will leap to make their art a vocation before it's ready. Um, and for some people like... Uh, one of my art students is in her uh, first year of art college now and she's crushing it. Like she works rings around everybody else and um, she's going to, she's going to be one of these superstars. And it's because she wakes up early in the morning. She does a lot of work and then she goes to class and she does a lot of work and nobody needs to tell her to do it. She's just like, she, she constantly has to be drawing. That's it. It's her obsession. And so she's going to be fine. You know, but a lot of students go and think, you know, based on talent, which is like the 20% or whatever, right? Yeah. But based on their talent, they're just going to hit it. And and honestly, that's what I thought. I really thought like all the good things were going to come to me after I graduated from school because I had talent. And that I learned pretty quickly, although it took me a long time to figure out how to get out of that that um, 80% of it had to be the hard work. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine calls it the iceberg principle. Yeah. It, and I, I think you said it. Most of your work is unseen. And a lot mm-hmm. of it's not fun. Or I would say, it's not that it's not fun, but that the successful artists, however you want to deem success, at this point, we're kind of talking about business and questioning whether or not that's a... Um, and that's another conversation we'll have here in a minute, I imagine, is... You know, is that a successful metric? Is that is that a decent metric for success? But for whatever you want to call success, 
I think the successful people learn how to love in a way, even the part of the iceberg that's under the water, that, yeah. that 80% that's under the water. You know, like as a touring musician, and both of you are musicians, and both of you have done, you know, a, a level of traveling and touring. So you, you guys know, like as a touring musician, you spend most of your day traveling, eating, waiting for the sound, waiting for them to open the doors. You spend a lot of time in dirty green rooms with... I was just going to say observing the yes, terrible things on the green room walls. The terrible things <laughs> on the walls. You know, which we actually met as a church in a bar for a while. And the green room where we prayed was covered with, um, you know what it's covered with. Yeah, and yeah. they painted over it for us. Oh. They're very kind. The bar owners, they really liked us. They painted over it, and it was fine for a while. It was fine until one reappeared. And no. after one reappeared, <laughs> boom. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was once again. But we digress. <laughs> uh, no, we digress. But... I think that the people I know who are successful, however you want to measure success, and we'll talk about that in a minute, I think, I think find ways to make the not fun stuff fun. You know, me and the band guys, we make travel fun. We invent ways for it to be fun. And we love that, you know, that 5% of our day, which is performing on the stage, playing on yeah. the stage, you know, but we figure out how to make the rest of it fun. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's really important is learning how to make that, Fun. I think people who can't do the mundane rarely get a chance to really perform well with the um, with the non mundane because the mundane is really where it's earned. You know, if you talk to a boxer, I think they fight like once a year, and they train Whoa. every day for a five minute fight. That's intense. You know, but they have to. And those last few weeks leading up to the fight, the training intensifies. You know, and uh, and so it is. It's the people who learn how to fall in love with the mundane. I think are the ones who often see a level of success. Well, let me ask this question. Then I know you guys have some really great questions around the subject of art and business or art and hustle. But when I think probably the one of the big challenges when we ask should it be a hobby or should it be a vocation is this question of validation. Are you is your work only valid if you get paid for it? And then there's the other question. Is your work still valid after you get paid for it? Because you have people in both camps, you know? Like I, I remember, um, I, I think every artist dreams of people appreciating and buying their work and spending money to come to their shows. And um, But then there's the flip side of it where once that's how you make a living, you have to keep doing it. So then if you're forced to do it, is it still valid? So how should I frame this question? And maybe the answer is, is neither, but is, let me just, let me just start. I'll start right here. Is making a living by your work, is that a decent metric for success as an artist? I think I know what you're going to say, but I just want to throw that out there. Is that a decent metric for success, whether or not you make a living making things it is a metric and by that it is validated to be a decent metric all right um it is it's a it's 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 as good a metric as any frankly i mean we could compare you know well van gogh didn't sell a single he only sold two pieces in his life and those were to his brother 
But um, in economic, in an economic standpoint, yes, it's not the only metric, yeah. right? I don't even think it's the primary metric. But you know, yeah. I think I answered your question in the most mediocre way possible. <laughs> so, I, well, I mean, look, even if I wasn't getting paid for what I do, I would still be doing it because I can't not draw. It's like. It comes from the, the deepest part of me. It's like my hands always need to be, you know, making things. There's not a chance I would not be doing it. That being said, I work in a very strange industry. So the publishing industry, it, it, it doesn't kind of work like a normal kind of corporate entity should, you know, or maybe it does. And I just don't really know a lot about corporate entities, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, like, not every book becomes a bestseller, right? And it's another 80-20 principle, right? So like 20% of the authors in a, you know, in a publishing house are going to float the other 80%. Their sales are going to, are going to enable other people like me basically to, to be able to make our books. Um, And hopefully someday I'll, you know, make that bestseller list and that's fine. But there's so many elements of that that are out of my control that, I really can't use that as a metric for whether I'm successful or not. And my friend Selena Yoon has a really great way to kind of reframe success, which is she makes beautiful, awesome, so creative um, board books and novelty books for for children, for like babies. They're like these, you know, the game books. Like you've you probably definitely have one on her on your shelf if you have children. <laughs> but her metric for success is how many publishers she's submitting to in a week, not mm-hmm. whether she sells the book. Wow. It's it's whatever, like whatever she's doing on her end as her due diligence, is she accomplishing that? If yes, then she can sleep at night and, and know that she's done her job. That's cool. You know, so yeah. so many of these things, especially well, but there's also the element that, you know, the fact that, you know, I am a commercial artist. I'm not a fine arts gallery-based painter. Right. So there does have to I do have to be a little bit cold hearted about it because I am running a business. And so I have to look at my bottom line and say, like, is the money coming in, you know, is what I'm doing being received by the market? Uh, You know, am I, am I educating myself enough? Am I, am I running a a responsible business and I'm, you know, can I pay my taxes, all of these things. And so there is like the, the kind of cold aspect of that, that I have to look at it with, but yeah, I think it's, it's complicated and and not every part of that is under my control. And I, I've also thought that economics in a sense are part of the art. Yeah. You know, like they're part of the art. Like, and this is one reason like I do want to do bigger shows than I'm doing is not because I want to get in front of more people or make more money, really. Um, I'm not against making money, but I could totally be fine making a living the way I am with the size shows that I'm doing, but the bigger shows, you have bigger budgets for creative things you can do on the stage, for musicians you can bring on, pyrotechnics, lights, TV screens, or, you know, if you want to do David Byrne type things and bring out a marching band, all that costs money, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, that's a big part of creativity is learning how to afford your artwork. You know, I got to put guitar strings on my guitar. I could write a song by beating on the guitar with no strings. You know, is any you know you can be creative, but I need to be able to put the strings on my guitar 
and there are things you need to have money. And so I do think economics, unfortunately, are part of being an artist. You need this type of paint versus this type of paint and enough of it to do what you need to do with it. You need to have what you need. So, But then there, there also, there's a creativity that comes from limitation as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, you know, in term, even this is part of economics is that, you know, I work with hundred dollar paintbrushes now, like wow. each one of my paintbrushes that I'm looking at on my desk right now is like a hundred dollars. I could never have done that 20 years ago. I would never, I wouldn't even even known what to do with it, but I work with five paint colors. You know, I don't need an enormous studio full of like all of these things. I like, I have, developed limitations around myself that enable me to flourish within them. So you could look and say, okay, I use a hundred dollar paintbrush. That seems extravagant. But if it's, if I only have three and I don't have 25, you know, all that are all like different, you know, options and whatever, then, you know, those limitations, they, they're economic considerations, but they're also, um, they enable me to, to fly. Yeah. Back to something you said early on, John Mark, you were talking about someone being basically uh, being forced, not, 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 not by an external coercion, but just the fact that they have to make money. They have to, you know, do the thing to continue to live. How that, you know, that can produce art just like anything else can. Mm-hmm. And that, again, it goes back to that whole weird idea that art can only is for us to be artists. There's this like strange, you know, passion drive in everything we do. And I think it's the same thing with our product. And I am using that word very deliberately, mm-hmm. you know, as it has to be, you know, everything we create has to be out of this uh, d- devout love for what we're doing. And that's, you know, I feel like that's entirely false. I think of the Sistine Chapel that was a commission. Yep. So that means he made money off of that. He survived mm-hmm. off of painting that, but we would never diminish its validity as a work of art because, you know, he survived by making that right. You know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of other artists and their pieces, I, I can think of some of Pollock's really large ones. They were commissioned pieces, you know, but still they're considered some of, you know, America's timeless treasures, you know, in the art world. So, you know, the idea of, 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 you know, that art can't come from that, you know, is that's kind of the cool thing about art is it's spawned from all kinds of rubbish and, um, necessity force. All of that is, I think it's just all part of that. The, the, the biology of how art's created, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. I was just thinking about that when you first said that, with uh, especially with you know the Sistine Chapel. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, and sometimes if things are too easy, you don't make a great product. If things are too easy, sometimes there needs yeah. to be a little bit of pressure. Uh, you know, and I don't know why I keep having this boxing metaphor. You know, boxing. You've been watching boxing art. lately. I, I, my son and I have been taking. Um, martial arts together in the park okay um there you go but i realized like you do the same motions over and over you do those mr miyagi things so mm-hmm. that you have muscle memory muscle memory yeah and there has to be resistance like so we're <laughs> we're actually using swords 
And everyone thinks we're like pretending to be samurai, but we're not. It's this. It's not a real sword. It's a wooden sword. But the reason yeah. we use the sword is because the sword has weight. Yeah. And we're learning foot movements and leg movements and we're learning arm movements, you know, and we're building muscles because the sword's weight. Because we're not going to, number one, it's a, it's a keto, which is not a, um, it's a non-competitive, it's a full, it's, de it's fully Beautiful. defensive. We love yeah. it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's defensive. So we're not learning how to kill people with swords, but by training with the swords, you're training with the weight because the resistance builds muscle. And I think it can be the same with art is I think that if there's not enough resistance, sometimes you don't build up that creative muscle. Yeah. It's not always that way. I mean, I know like super privileged people who have made great art, but then I know some who just, they don't have to produce anything and they struggle to create anything significant. And I think part of it is because they never had that moment where they're like, if you don't cut it right now, you will not go to the next level. You are not going to pay the, your apartment. Uh, you're not going to pay the rent on your apartment if the piece you have been commissioned to make or if, if what you're making does not meet a certain standard. And there is something about that pressure, you know, that um, requires you to dig in and give your best. You know, I didn't go to, I didn't go to college for music, you know. I know you guys did, um, or Brandon did. Vesper, did you go to art school? Yeah. Yep. And so you, I imagine you get a lot of that resistance in art school. Oh, yeah. You know, That's all you, you get. Yeah. And so I really didn't get any of that. I, I wish I had. I wish I had studied music. But I didn't know I was going to be a musician professionally. It just, it just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. But I, I had more of the real world resist, resistance. Like if you, if you don't sell tickets to the show... You know, you're not going to have gas money to get to the next city. Right. And so you feel that weight like, all right, I, what I'm doing has to be good. It has to be good enough for a person to take time off from work and want to come and be a part of what I'm doing. And when you feel that pressure, it actually is a good pressure. Um, it can be bad as well. There's that, I can't remember who I was talking to. There's that perfect point where there's just enough pressure. And then if you go over that point where the pressure pushes you, pushes you, pushes you. Then you get that point where it just goes over a hill and then too much pressure causes your performance to totally deteriorate. But finding that sweet spot, I think, yeah. can be uh, really, really helpful. And economics can play into that, I think. Well, let me ask you guys both another question here because we're coming up on the, um, on like the 20 or 30, 25, 30 minute mark here. So let me ask you this. Both of you are professional artists and both of you do things on the side for passion. You know, what What has been your journey to where you are? You know, wh when did you realize like, okay, I want to do or I think I can or I think I should do art, you know, vocationally? So the art that I'm going to talk about is, is what I do for a living, which is um, design. I actually graduated with a degree in illustration, Vesper. Right on. And we very, very early on in our marriage, we got pregnant and I had to start really making money. And so I just didn't have the, I didn't have that, you know, it, I had to make money now. And it, it, it did really spawn a bit out of necessity. 
I totally lied my way through my first interview. I was like, yeah, I know these programs. I got you. And I might have looked at it before, whatever. But um, that's kind of how I started. That was back in 99. And um, so from there, um, I did. I actually had to develop a love for what I do because I, you know, graphic design was always a means to an end for me. And that end was, you know, you know, financial. But, you know, like slowly I saw the, the beauty of it, the value of it, you know, loving to nerd out on it, you know, learn about it. And, and all of its wonderful kind of, um, especially, I guess, in current society, and, and this, um, again, not segueing over to digital, but how so much of, of our technology now melds things together. You know, when is graphic design illustration? When is illustration graphic design? When do they both become art? You know, it's, I love those really fun, fantastic gray areas. Cause there's a lot of like pixie dust in those spaces. And, um, yeah, so I just kind of, I had to learn how to, I feel like it was almost like an arranged marriage in a way, me getting into graphic design. Cause I'm like, okay, this is, this is what I can do, whatever. And then I just kind of developed a love for it over the years. So that's where I am with that. I love to do art on the side. That's still kind of more a thing, you know, where I'll seldomly sell a piece, but yeah. Um. <laughs> Does your painting like feed into your ability to keep going with a graphic design? Like, mm -hmm. does it, is it part of the fuel? Um, like even if you don't do it every day or something? Yeah. Yeah. In a way, but I do wish that there was a little bit of a, of a, a line of demarcation there between both, because it's like, I use so much of my creativity to do design that like when I do get the opportunity to paint, it's tough, right? It's hard to do that, you know? And sometimes I love the creative juice that I used in design. And sometimes I'm like, ugh. so it is. It's always been a ballet that, you know, I have to learn new steps every month. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. For me, like hearing you talk about that reminds, it reminded me that I'm a novelist. Because <laughs> um, like I, I came into writing novels in a similar way that you came into graphic design. Like, so there, for me, there really was no plan B. I was always going to be an illustrator. Although I did do my freshman year of college, I had a, a slight hiccup and I went to North Carolina school of the arts for scene design for theater. Nice. Yeah. Um, it was the worst year of my life, but, um, oh. anyway, <laughs> so it always, I, I think it's like very, very nice that now I have all these friends in North Carolina. It's definitely redemptive for me because that really go, like was that. the worst year. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. terrible. <laughs> you know, when you, not only was it just a terrible year, but also like I was completely not in the right field. But anyway, illustration for me was it. That's all I wanted to do was make picture books. And for some reason, my picture books never hit it. And so like I did a lot in uh, web design. I did a lot of web production. I designed websites for small businesses for years and years as I was trying to break into more and more illustration and phase myself out. I remember the day that I phased myself out of web design. It was a great day. But the writing came much, much later. And it's interesting to me now that it's actually my writing that pays the bills. Um, and I do illustrate my novels and I think that that like puts me in an interesting niche and I'm very, very excited about the possibilities that that opens up for other people, for other illustrators, you know, to create like long form illustrated books. But 
I don't know how I'm here <laughs> at this point. You know, such a mystery. And you know what's interesting is, especially for younger artists who are listening to this podcast, I feel like most people I know who are successful in their craft would also say that the thing or the things that they are most known for, they enjoy. But if they had it their way, that wouldn't be the thing that they're remembered for. And I've, like, I've known, you know, it's, it's, I've known some uh, pretty successful musicians and they really love what they do. But when you really sit down and talk to them, you realize the song that everybody loves that sort of made their career is not necessarily the song that they think is like their best song. Yeah. You know, so in a lot of ways, I think that very, very often your ability to be successful vocationally is your ability to serve people is to find like what, you know, is to identify the thing that you do that best serves people or that serves the most people. I guess that would be the business way. We want to go big. So, you know, the thing that serves the most people, and this is where I've failed, <laughs> you know, but the business thing would be like, this one thing you do is really successful. So we're going to double down, triple down, quadruple yeah. down yep. on this, you know. And I've always run away from that. That's always been really annoying for me. It's like, I want to put all my energy into the thing that I am the most excited about. So I have a friend who is a very successful illustrator and she's at a point of frustration right now where she feels like she's doing the same thing over and over and it's what people are hiring her for, you know, mm -hmm. and they keep hiring her for and she's very busy, um, but she's really dissatisfied and she's trying to find, like, she can't, get the time to be able to like reinvent mm -hmm. and, and work on new things, you know? Yep. So it's, it's a, it's a good problem to have, like how many people would love to have that problem, you know, yeah. but it does, you, you reach a point where artistically you need to move on from the thing that, and, and I think that this is actually the problem that a lot of people have with early success, mm -hmm. you know? So people who really hit it big when they're young, that was not my, <laughs> it took me a really, really long time, you know, but, um, and so I was constantly having to reinvent, right? Like there was nothing that I could kind of settle into, um, you know, early on. So, so I, you know, that's the reverse for me, but like for a lot of people, that's, that can be a problem. Definitely. I've definitely seen that multiple times. Yeah. It's, uh, especially with the internet. Now there's not, it's hard to reinvent yourself yeah. in the public eye once you've, become really popular for doing something it's very hard to do something else right. um even like the way the algorithms work so like yeah. like i wish that spotify would post my newest project first but they don't they go to the song that's the most popular and that song might not be a song i even play very often like for me it's a song my wife is the lead vocal on which is awesome because she has a beautiful voice but i do think it's weird if you've never heard me before and you look me up you think I sound like Sarah, which would be a feat if I could sing that way. <laughs> and it's fine, but I don't like the way the algorithms feed into that. I wish I had more control over it, but you don't. And so sometimes this is something this for maybe a future podcast, like success is not always a blessing. Right. Sometimes success is a curse. Um, and once again, we have to define what success is, but sometimes early success does get you locked into a path that maybe you didn't uh, bargain for yeah. or maybe more mature you, you know, wasn't interested in, but younger you. Seinfeld has a thing about night guy and morning guy. 
you know? <laughs> or what's the Homer Simpson bit about mayonnaise? He's eating a jar of mayonnaise. Oh my gosh, it's been a while since I watched it. mayonnaise. <laughs> he says, that's terrible for your health. He says, oh, that's tomorrow Homer's problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, <laughs> but we do kind of live like that as artists. I see it a lot in music where we just people are dying for attention, and sometimes I'm like, you don't want attention right now because you're not good enough right now at what you do. You know, if this song you write it becomes really, really popular, you're gonna have to live with it for the rest of your life. So yeah. it's sometimes it's a blessing not to be successful until you're ready for it. But anyway, I think we're coming to the end of this conversation. Um, I want to ask, can we do a quick lightning round here? I just want to ask, well, not a lightning round, but I want to ask one question. If you have in the, you know, in like a 30 to 60 second answer, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to young artist who is trying to make it vocationally? Um, with their work. And it doesn't have to be like the top thing. It can just be whatever comes to mind. What would you go tell you 20 years ago? I don't know if I'd tell me this because I think <laughs> I'd have more important things to tell me. But I think for artists in general, and this is because I, I taught art for 10 some odd years. And even before that, John Mark, remember my drawing class? You were one of my I do. I was, in, I was your student. Yeah. That's right. Is you and Christopher, but um, I still have those notebooks, by the way, man, awesome. y'all do good stuff. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> what I would always tell my art students is impatience is the enemy to good art. Um, and I don't, I, I, I think I like absolutes more than I say I don't, but, um, I really feel like that's a huge one is impatience. Mm. Um, and, um, but the beautiful thing about that is that that is a broad brush, you know, because impatience is the enemy to fill in the blank when it comes to your career, you know, um, everything else is, is just getting impatient. And, yeah. and like, like, like we've actually already alluded to is, you know, early success, you know, jumping out there before we're ready, you know, all of that can be added to that. So I would say impatience is the enemy to good art. It's an interesting question because I am going to start teaching at my university in the fall. And so I'm going to have these seniors who are about to launch into the world um, as illustrators. And, and this is exactly my job. So, um, and I have to teach 30 weeks of it. So condensing it down into 30 seconds, we'll try. But I think uh -huh. that pr probably um, there's two things. One is relationships, relationships, relationships just treating people really well. You know, the people who like, whether it's somebody who you're trying to like submit your work to or like make a connection with or whatever, like not treating that person as a means to an end, mm. but really, really treating them with care and love and respect as a human being and understanding that you're part of a pretty small community. Um, so that would be my one thing. But then the other thing is to not mess up that 80-20 rule. So you, you'll have two different kinds of artists when, when you're young. You'll have the people who are really obsessed and they're like spending 100% of their time just making stuff, making stuff, and they never leave their apartment, you know, and, and they, they, like, they don't go out and then they burn out really quickly or like they don't know how to, you know, just let off steam, right? You have to always have that 20% release valve. You know, whether it's like 
you, you go out with a friend or like you go on a date or, you know, you go to a museum or you see a movie or whatever. Right. So like, that's more like my problem, my issue. But then you have people who get it the reverse where it's like 80% of the time they're going out with friends, they're networking, they're having the fun, they're, you know, they're all about the art scene or whatever, or the music scene. And then they're only doing their work 20% of the time. And that's not going to pan out either. So getting that ratio right and the being relational. Mm. That's such a big deal. Relationships. Because you that's not a thing I think you would think of very often. You know, when when you're even if you're super talented, is that your art does not exist independently of the human beings in your Correct. world. Correct. And I'm you know, music, yeah. I think all art is somewhat collaborative. Even something you're doing yourself, there's someone is gonna hang it on their wall. Somebody's hopefully gonna show it to someone. You know, it's like, but especially in music, music is very collaborative. Mm-hmm. You know, and so like, I when I was young, I used to think that my vision was important enough that other human beings should do the things I needed them to do to support my vision, and they should have, if they had any other motivation, then something was wrong with them. I don't know that I could have articulated back then. But I think I actually felt that way. I thought my music was so important to like God and the universe that all these people really should help me and they should do it because they want to. And, and no, part of the art is, is realizing what motivates those people and making sure that they have a real reason to be there. And that your motivation and their motivation may be a little bit different. And hopefully they can overlap. Sometimes they can't and you have to say bye. So I'm just sorry. But hopefully they can overlap. But that is such a great um, piece of advice. Um, I think the one thing I would say is that um, when one thing I would tell the younger me and one thing I tell young musicians especially is that your audience owes you nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Is it? And if you can start there, then you realize you have to earn everything that you get from your audience. Nothing is free. And anyone who does show up, anyone who does listen to your music, anyone who buys your books, who buys your paintings, who takes time out of their life to engage in what you're doing is an absolute gift. And you should figure out how to cherish that and how to... Um, cultivate and hold that close and, and love that and treat those people very kindly because they don't owe you anything. And, well said. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what I would tell um, my younger self is that it's, it's not the only factor, but it is a major factor when you want to move from hobby to vocation is yeah. how... Are you treating, are you entitled with the people who are, for lack of a better term, consuming your work? Or do you really honor and appreciate them? Mm. I think. Um, Well, anyway, guys, this has been delightful. Do you have any final words for this particular round of the Summer Makers and Mystics roundtable series? No, that was a great note to end that on. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Gives me a lot to think about. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you guys. And um, until next time, this is Makers and Mystics. 
And I might edit that part out and say something way cooler than that. <laughs> but if I don't, you're listening to me now and the podcast is over and you listen to the whole thing. So I got you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the conversation today. We'll be back again next week with another roundtable episode on memes, propaganda, and art. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for more information and links to today's guests. Thank you.